But the men stepped into a church, I believe it was a Methodist church at the time, to get out of the cold and heard a man who wasn't even the pastor speaking. I think he came in there primarily just to get out of the cold. And that night, the man heard a quote from Isaiah, turn to me and be saved. It wasn't even that the message had any form of fireworks. I don't know if you've seen the recording or whatever of the fireworks from last night. It was nothing of that sort. There was no great theatrical display. There was no great technology. There were no smoke and mirrors. And that night, that man who heard it, it was I think he was the only one or one of the very, very few that was in this room, smaller in attendance than the amount of people we have in this room right now. And that man heard something that for it seems like may have bounced off of his ears for every time prior, and that was that God just simply had a great plan for his life, and it all started with grace. And that night, that man's name is Charles Haddock Spurgeon. He just responded to the call, and completely unaware of what phenomenon would take place from something like that. And the reason I say that is that you have no idea <coughs> what a night like this could produce. Um, we're happy to be inside and warm versus outside in the blustery cold. We're in a beautiful, warm church building that was clearly built for the purpose of trying to somehow iconize the glory of God in some manner. When you'd come in, you'd feel like God was here. And on a night like that, there was nothing impressive of the evening except the one thing that should be, which was the living God who spoke to hearts. Clearly this man's heart. Now, traditionally, as you know, we go verse by verse, chapter by chapter through the Word of God. We have a very rare opportunity here. This is the first day of the year in the year 2014. We are staring at 364 more of these days and wondering what's going to become of it. So tonight, instead of going through our 1 Corinthians text, I've just been in prayer about what the Lord would have for us as fellowship, as individuals, as Christians, as we look at this year to come. And the Lord's put a verse that, to be honest, I was reluctant to pull up. And the reason is, is because it's fairly well known. And because of that, it's fairly well known on the, on the half-inch surface. And because of that, I... I I tend to be a little bit more like, let's find something obscure that we can kind of pull out. And yet I think that the Lord, well, I'm confident that the Lord really wants to, wants to take us to something that we've sort of driven by for so many times. So that we're familiar with the landmark, we can see it, we can point other people. Oh yeah, you take this line to that line and get off here, walk a block down this way, take a ride at the petrol station, and there it is, you can't miss it. That's kind of like some verses. We've never stepped in the text, we've just kind of walked by it. And, and here's one of them. So go to the Lord in prayer with me, would you please? And then I'm going to have you raise your hand if you don't have a Bible and see. A lot of the verses will be, I believe, up on the screen to make it easy, but I want you to be able to find them in verse 2. Pray with me, would you please? Lord, on this night where there were many excuses to not come, there's always many excuses to not come. None of them great under circumstances like this. The weather, the trains, the public transportation, whatever. The late night, early morning. 
But Lord, you've brought us here tonight. It's not by accident. Tonight in this room, we have the opportunity tonight to fellowship with you in your word and to to ask for you to speak to us. And that's my prayer tonight. So Lord, immerse me in your Holy Spirit that I would disappear and you would appear. So Lord, it isn't that they would see anything of me but of you. That your word would burst open and come alive. That they would see Jesus, your son, your only begotten monogenes, the only one from your gene pool. And then fill me with your Holy Spirit. Come upon me in such a way, Lord, that I would simply be the jersey you wear, the tool in your hand, the paintbrush to which you brought, which you wrote about beautiful masterpieces and paint now upon the canvas of our lives. Type now upon them the script, Lord, that only you could write so much better than ours. And so, Lord, tonight, please, let your word have a straight shot to our hearts, even as John the Baptist would say, every valley be lifted, every hill brought low. Lord, let there be nothing you have to go over, through, or around to get to us. Lord, we give you free and open access now. Speak to us tonight. Don't let us, Lord, play the, oh yeah, I know that game. Lord, even in the simplest things that could be most profound, Lord, that could be made contemptuous, Lord, because we're familiar, so familiar with it. Tonight, Lord, open our heart afresh and say, Lord, as you've brought me here, what is it you'd like to speak to me specifically? So speak to every one of us in our heart of hearts, in our ears, in our minds, and speak to us together as a family that we could learn to love each other like you've called us to. So have your way now, Lord. Let every, every second be one redeemed by you. In Jesus' name, amen. If you don't have a Bible, raise your hand, please. We'll get one right to you. Anyone? Well, that's nice. You've brought them? I'm, that's great. I've learned as I've listened to many people... When we make plans for ourselves, our simple answer would be that the theme would be bless me. And I realize that the very things in which we bless and seek to bless become almost the most detrimental and deleterious to our own spiritual well-being. Usually it kind of makes it works like this. God, make my life more comfortable. God, make my life more easy. And make my, make my life more sudden and ready. Now, not necessarily ready for the hard thing ready for the thing that demands God's miraculous intervention, but rather make my life so I don't have to wait. Lord, wouldn't it be great if every light was green when I drove up to it? Wouldn't it be great if every train, if I were late, was stalled until I got there? Wouldn't it be great, God, if when I opened up the whatever it is, it was just the timing I was looking for? Make my life now. Make it comfortable. Make it easy. We don't pray, God, send more trials in my life. I mean, if you do, chances are you're probably a little concerned about yourself too. I had an assistant pastor. And can I just say, can I brag on some of my boys? The, the, um, 
this afternoon we discovered that my youth pastor back in the States, um, who has just left to go plan a work in Michigan, my uh, Bible college administrator who has left to go to Arkansas to go and plan a work there, my youth pastor just got engaged today. So I was very, very excited for him. I mean, he's one of those guys that felt like he was, shouldn't be single and he was like 18 and his voice was still cracking when we first met him. He's one of those kind of guys. And I just love listening to these guys talk about how great their life is. And it's like, we don't pray, all right, God, give me more trials. Give me strength for those trials. We just pray, God, just remove those trials. Let this year be a year of blessing. And by blessing, we mean a life more comfortable, a life that's easier, a life where things go our way. And so we say, God, bless me. And then we look at God's plans. And God's plans aren't to bless me as much as they are to grow me. And understand the greater blessing is always in God's plans. But growth is often a rather painful thing. Because growth, by the way, well, it demands some sacrifice. It demands for us to abrogate and leave things we came from to embrace new things, to forget what is behind and press forward for the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. And that means that we have to leave the familiar for the unfamiliar. And that means that we have to relinquish and let go of those things often that we think are actually good, but they're not best. And we've convinced ourselves they're as good as they need to be. But see, God doesn't shoot for, okay, things are okay or mildly great. God shoots for perfect and amazing and and, and awe-striking, the kind of things that, to be honest, we would love. We just don't like the route to get there. And so so as I started to look at this, I started to ask, Lord, well, God, what does this come down to? And God, run out to the simple verse, and that's Jeremiah 29, verses 11, 12, and 13. And if you shoot those up on the screen, and I think that's where we start this today. Um... Oh, we went there first. Okay, that's my fault. Um, hear me. These are the verses. Jeremiah 29, verses 11, 12, and 13. He says this, and perhaps you're familiar. For I know the thoughts that I think toward you, says the Lord, thoughts of peace and not of evil, to give you a future and a hope. Then you will call upon me. This is the part we don't like to read afterwards because that just sounds so nice. It fits so nicely on a card or a plaque or the kind of thing we put into our little phone on our screensaver. You can't put much more. You can't read it. But listen to the rest after that. Then you will call upon me and go and pray to me and I will listen to you and you will seek me and find me when you search for me with all your heart. Now understand the context of Jeremiah 29 and 11 and I don't even want to build on it too much but I want to bring a little bit of depth to clarity here is that Jeremiah is writing at a time roughly in the 580s, 590s BC at this point, where Israel, the southern area of Judah now, is about to be taken captive. They've had 20 kings. They're on their 20th by this point, right at that point. And the area of Babylon has strengthened itself and has besieged the area of Jerusalem. Two different times around this now, people have already been taken captive. The first time, the best of the Hebrew boys. That's Daniel, that's Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego. Actually, those are their given names by the Babylonians. Now, I don't know about you, but would you feel good if you made the cut or not so good if you made the cut? They took the best, but they made them eunuchs. So it's kind of lose-lose. Shortly thereafter, within the next 10 years, they will come back and take then 10,000 more men, including Ezekiel, bring them to the brook Chabar. The Jewish people will be in one of three places at this point. They will be in Jerusalem, they will be with the majority of the captives at the brook Chabar, or they will be in the palace, and God has a witness in each one of them. 
Jeremiah, among those in Jerusalem, turns to the people and says, you need to listen. God is not to be mocked. He's not to be played with. And you're not going to get away with what you think because you make up the rules. Doesn't mean God's going to change them. God has promised you need to give this land a Sabbath every seventh year and for 490 years you haven't done it. And God, by his grace, has not kept interest. He's just kept tally. And for 70 years this land's going to get the rest that's promised. So we're going to have to remove you for that. But God wasn't doing this primarily because the land needed to rest. Let's face it, God could have won and the land was fine. But the people lived a duplicit of life. They had one foot in the church and they had one foot in the clubs. They had one hand raised in surrender and the other hand out reaching for the newest whatever it is and saying, that will complete me. A part of their heart says, God, I love you. You're all I need. And another part was filling out an eHarmony profile. And with all of that, God knew that in this case, there was a part of them that was towards him and a part that was towards the idols. And so God let them have all the idols they could possibly want. And God has a tendency to do this. Go ahead. You really want to see how bad the world is and this convoluted state of security you have? Why don't you get to the buffet? All you can eat, buddy. And out they went to Babylon with all the idols you could possibly eat. But he knew this. When they returned, they would return with a single heart. There would be no more Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. No more spiritual schizophrenia. And at this point, there would be some kind of focus. And it's under those pretenses, God says, I know the plans that I have for you. Every one of our lives are going to be put in a place sooner or later where you're going to feel like you're in the wilderness. And we see it with every one of the great men in Scripture one way or another, whether that's Abraham and his wandering, which was primarily the majority of his later life. Whether that's Moses for the 40 years in the wilderness, which where he will die, by the way, for the new generation to make it into the promised land because the old man will not do well in the new world God puts you in. Or whether that's David who would spend literally half of his life running before becoming king. During that particular time, God has this way of showing himself to be everything you actually say he is. Your protection, your provision, your peace. Me too, by the way. But sometimes God will actually have to take you from your comfort and re-wilderness you for a while. Maybe some of you feel like you're there today. I'm under the impression some of you came in here feeling like that's where you're at right now. You really don't feel like the roots have grown deep at this particular moment. And I'm here to tell you, God's not here to just throw a placard on your heart and get you this warm, fuzzy feeling. He's here to let you know that God's desire for you is for three simple things. For peace, for a future, and a hope. With this in mind, that you would call out to him, (coughs) that you would seek him, absolutely. Not just when you think you need him, not just when it's convenient, not when you're stuck in a place where you need a miracle, but you're aware of the fact that every breath is a miracle. So this is where it goes from here for a moment before we develop those three things to bring this around. What the scripture makes clear is that like it or not, you're going to grow either way. 
Though we might say, bless me, make my life more comfortable, more easy, more immediate. And God would say, I'd rather grow you to give you a peace and a future and a hope. God makes clear in Scripture that everything grows in one direction or another. Listen, in the end of it all, God is going to win. It tells us, though a man makes his plans and he plans his way, this is Proverbs 69, it's the Lord who directs his path. It says in Proverbs 19.21, that though there are many plans that are in a man's heart, nevertheless the Lord's counsel, that will stand. We even read in Psalm 37 that the plans of the steps of the righteous man, verse 23, the steps of the righteous man are ordered, are walked through by God. So listen, here's one way you could grow. If you live with the bless me, me first, God follow my lead, this is where you're bound to grow. And I want to warn you, some of us have already had quite the deal of experiences in these areas. 1 Timothy 5.11, by the way, speaks of younger widows who refuse to marry, or I should say refuse to marry, but instead that they grow wanton against Christ because they had originally desired to simply make Christ everything, and now they're out hunting for a new man. The idea of growing wanton is the idea of growing restless, of growing with a desire to wander. And if we do not grow the way God wants us to grow, we will grow in our restlessness. We will grow in our wandering. Here's the thing. If we really make Christ everything, wherever we walk with Him is home. Wherever we are with Him is enough. We're never alone. We're never empty. And we're never depleted. He really is everything we need. And you could say, well, that's easy for you to say. You're married. I'm single. Hey, don't talk. Let me, let me challenge you. Talk to married people and see what happens. They get lonelier than the single people because they think that their wife or their husband will do it for them. Christ has to be it because the whole isn't for a human being. It's for Jesus. For God the man. And we can grow wanton. Listen to these verses. 1 Samuel 3.2 It came to pass at that time while Eli was lying down, or Eli was lying down in his place, and when his eyes had begun to grow so dim that he could not see. Job speaks in 14.8, and he says, Though the root may grow old in all the earth, and growing old is listed at least five times in Scripture. Isaiah 17.4, it says that the glory of Jacob will wane, and the fatness in his flesh will grow lean. Isaiah 29.22 says, concerning the house of Jacob, that his face will grow pale. Jeremiah 6.24 says that our hands grow feeble. Can I say, not only if we walk from what God calls us to, do we grow wanton, we also grow weak. And you watch it, and God gave us the most beautiful example, inside and out, with Solomon. There was a time when Solomon was walking in the presence of God, seeking to make God everything, and he found purpose in ants, 
Everywhere he went. And do you know people like this? No matter where the conversation is, it all goes back to the Lord somehow. That kind of reminds me. I was watching this movie and it kind of reminded me. I heard this song. Ah, we're stuck in traffic. That reminds me the rich and the poor are all going to be standing before God like we're all stuck on the street. And you know, there's those people that, there's those moments where no matter where it is, it always goes back to scripture. It goes back to the Lord. And if you're not in that place, it'll drive you mental. And it should until you get there. May we all be those kind of people where everything we see, we see through the lens of eternity. But then with Solomon, the same man who could watch a snake or a rock badger or a coney, but they're kind of cool. They can hang off the edge. Be, you know, if you've ever been to Israel, it's a pretty fun thing to watch. He looks and he goes, man, I just see it. Everything will ultimately wind up writing meaningless. It's all meaningless. Nothing new under the sun. You could see him saying, I have 160 channels now on my satellite. Mm, it's meaningless. I've gone to every rave. I've hit every club. I've done every drink that there is. I've gone on the internet and tried all kinds of bizarre things physically with all kinds of people. And just, there's nothing left. Nothing left to explore. I mean, this is just worthless. It's meaningless. And you watch a man that the harder that he worked, the less he got. Because he just grew wanton and then grew weak. Because he was unable to perform what God had for him in his flesh. For those of you, and I don't mean to pop your bubble, hey, you're welcome to, to think differently, but when you read the Song of Solomon as a songwriter, can I say, the Song of Solomon was written by whom? Solomon, that should be an easy question, right? The Song of Solomon was written by? Solomon. Yeah, okay. If that be the case, look at it from the perspective of the guy who wrote it who's a king. The king writes this song, and the song is that there's this girl, and she's got the hots for him. She's willing to run out into Brixton in the middle of the night. She's willing to run out in places where she knows is bad. She's going to get beat up and worse, but it doesn't matter because his legs are like bronze and he's the babe. This guy is just, oh, he should just make a statue out of this guy. You the hunk, you the thing, you the man. It sounds like a rap video. And in it, he's kind of like, yeah, 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 you're cute too. But even his flattery is left-handed if you know the culture. And then he like hides from her and she chases after him again and he hides from her again in essence and she chases after him again. Think about who writes a song like that where the whole thing is about someone who's in love with him so much though because she adores the way he looks. You get an idea from the inside out. This guy had some real serious issues and this is what happens when you turn from the fulfillment of the Lord. You grow. You just don't grow well. You grow weak. Listen to this. Galatians 6, 9 says, Let us not grow weary, and some of you are familiar with this, while doing good. For in due season we shall reap if we do not lose heart. We read the same thing in essence in 2 Thessalonians 3.13. The third thing we can grow is weary. Do you feel that now? Are you tired of wandering? Are you tired of being of failing? Are you tired of being so weary? And just to make it worse, Matthew 24, 12 tells us because the lawlessness will abound, the love for many will grow cold. 
2 Timothy 3.13 says, Evil men and imposters will grow worse and worse. The worst part is then we grow worse. So you can grow this way if you want to. You're welcome to. God has given you that choice to grow wanton, restless, wandering, and wandering, to grow weak, to grow weary, and then to grow worse. Now, in this particular room, in the sanctity of, the, of this particular moment, we'd be fools to say, yeah, sign me up. But the choices are made out there when you know that the Lord has better, but you choose worse. And God says, no, no, I have a plan for you. A plan to give you peace, not to harm you. And we pick that which harms us. To give you a future and we say, no, I want it now. And the devil knows that and he works off of that. The guy's like, every, he's like totally works on credit, right? You get the goods up front and you spend the rest of your life paying for it. Isn't that how the enemy works? Come on, look at you need this now. Forget about the easy payments. Get this now. I want it now. God says, but I want to give you a future. I want to cash it all in now. Give me my inheritance now, Dad. I want to go out. There's a world out there I need to go discover. God says, I'd rather give you a hope. And you grow restless. And it just grow, you grow weaker and wearier. And you know what the most damning part about it is? You look back and you knew there was better because you had better. There was a time in your life you looked and you said, wait a minute, this is not who I was. This is not who I was. There was a time when the name of Jesus made my heart skip a beat. And what is this? Now I listen to this and it's like this, the same song that used to bring me to tears almost irritates me now. How is that? Before I could sit and read the Bible for hours and now it's like a sedative. What happened to me? You can go that way if you want. But let me say that if we're, letting the let, if we're willing to let the Lord grow us, He's got a plan to grow us as well. Listen to this. For instance, 2 Peter 3, 18 says, But grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ to Him. Be both glory now and forever. Amen. In Ephesians, when it talks about us growing up in 4.15, it says that we may grow up in all things into Him who is the head, Christ, ultimately to an ultimate unity. One of the things we grow in, if we actually grow the way the Lord is intended, is that we grow in fellowship. We grow in fellowship with Him first, and we grow in fellowship with each other second. It tells us if we walk in the light as He is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus Christ, His Son, the righteous, purifies us from all unrighteousness, from all sin. Would we want to grow in fellowship? That's a choice we can make. Ezekiel 31.4 says that the waters make the great trees grow. Underground water gave it height with the rivers running around the place where it was planted, they sent out rivulets to all the trees of the fields. One of the things that we grow with Christ is we grow firm. Which is the opposite, of course, of growing weak. That same tree that took stakes and string and twine to hold it up in the beginning. Once it grows and those roots grow deep, firmly rooted, a car runs into it and the car gives and the tree doesn't. But they all start the same. Beloved, please hear me. God would like to grow you firm. It tells us in Psalm 92.12, and we'll almost get there in a moment, to 13, it says, The righteous shall flourish 
like a palm tree. They shall grow like a cedar in Lebanon. Not only do we grow in fellowship and grow firm, we grow to flourish. That same thing where before we grew weary, now we're flourishing. Our life is vibrant and it's colorful. It's like that moment when in Technicolor introduced color films when Dorothy opens the door and it's all been black and white films on screens to that point and she opens the door and all the colors of Oz are before her and it's the first time anyone ever sat into a theater and saw color on a screen like that. You ever remember that day when you gave your life to Christ and the entire world that was in sepia at best or just grayscale turned into colors, vibrant and effervescent and how the whole world became a dance number all of a sudden? Like your life was a musical and you're not even musical. You're like, I don't know, this is weird. But every I'm smiling like I never used to smile. And the weirdest things, it's like crazy stuff. And now it's like I missed my train and I thought, ah, that just means God's got a better plan. Do you remember those days? When you grew and you were flourishing. And you know what happens when you grow like that? You become, and this is the last of those, fruitful. Because you become magnetic. Because in a world here where it's questionable to smile like that, and people want to know what exactly it is and where they can buy it from, because it must be illegal. And here you are smiling because what God has done in your life has painted in the inside so transformed you full of color that you can't see the world around you anymore like the way you used to. You've been lifted over the overcast and now you've seen the entire horizon of eternity before you and now you've been put back under that overcast and your entire face glows like it. And you can grow that way too if you want. And here we are on the first day of 2014. The first day with the entire year ahead of us. And tonight we could make a choice. What kind of growing do we want? Because we're going to grow one way or the other. Wouldn't it be worse if we grew both ways? Is that like our life? Spiritual ping pong? Well, we grow a little bit more devoted, but then we grow a little bit more wandering. Then we grow a little bit stronger, but then we grow a little bit weaker. It's like some kind of cha-cha in Christ. Do you really think that's what he's intended and when someone says, well, you know, it's up and ups and downs, it's like, a, you know what, Christ never, show me in scripture where God says that's what our life's supposed to be. We are not supposed to be living constantly on this spiritual lift. Where it all depends on the circumstances around you, who's pressing the button, whether the elevator or the lift goes up or down. We've been taught that by the world, but the world only has circumstances to gauge it because it doesn't have joy. It only has happiness, and happiness is gauging by the circumstances, by the happenings for which we get happy from. And so since that's what we knew, that's what we think should happen for us. But Christ has so transformed us, our world inside has been revolutionized. The circumstances outside shouldn't have the same pull they used to. It could be raining. Your shoes could have fallen off. You could have had a really crazy day. You just got laid off. Someone just got in your face. And you could still go to sleep with a smile on your face tonight because all of that stuff's going to burn. Do you remember that? So let's go back to God's plan for a moment and develop it for a second and bring this around. Listen to this again. I know the thoughts that I think toward you, says the Lord. God is about to, at this point, bring them to a place where they're going to wander. But what if you're there now? Do you think God would remind him of this again? What if now is the time he's bringing you home? What if now with all of the wandering and you ask those questions, who am I and what on earth am I doing and why am I here and why am I doing this? God, you've given me gifts and talents. Should I use every one of them? How do I use them? What do I do? And somehow it's almost like you think God gave you a toolbox and then said build, but he didn't even give you blueprints. Instead of you being the tool that you surrender to his hand and let him do the work. 
And so you're tired because you're tired of trying to figure it out. And what kind of dad tells his kids, hey, I want to bless you today, but I'm going to leave it all in code. And if you don't figure it out, I'm going to punish you. What kind of dad does that? How could we treat God that way? Listen, I know the thoughts that I think toward you, says the Lord. Thoughts of peace, not of evil, to give you a future and a hope. Then you will call upon me and go and pray to me. That's what he says. And you will listen to me. See, God really, I'm sorry, he says, and I will listen to you. And you will seek me and find me. You will search for me all your heart. Now listen, here's the first of them, or three. God's plan for you this year, and I'm confident of it, and me too, is peace. It's the one word we may even know in, in Hebrew. It's the word shalom. It's the same word that's used today when you say hello or goodbye. But if God is really going to bring peace in your life this year, let me warn you. For him to bring the kind of peace he wants to bring, he's going to have to evict the counterfeits. He's going to have to prove wrong your poor defaults. And he's going to have to eliminate your crutches. Listen to that again, please. In order for Christ to set his peace upon you the way he wants to, there needs to be room made. There is within every human heart the compartment for peace. He created it. And if we don't take God's peace, we'll take very sorry counterfeits. Counterfeits can be relationship after relationship, job after job, pseudo-purpose after pseudo-purpose. It could be like our defaults. When you say, it's been a rough day today, what does that afford you? A handful of shots at the pub? A six-hour hobbit service? A time to go run out and do something really stupid with their friends? And we all have it. We have those things where if it's been a rough day, we and let's face it, if we want to sin, we'll just invent a rough day. Right? If that's our accommodations. You know what? Oh, okay, so I missed the bus. I didn't have any place to be, but I missed the bus. That's enough to go do some internet porn. Well, you know, it's been, you know, you know I, I, that person could have been nicer to me than it's been a rough day. I should go out and, and smack down a handful of pints. Well, you know what? I'll just, you know what? It, I, I've worked hard today. I sat in front of a screen for five hours, six hours uh, with a lunch break. It's been a rough day. I deserve to sit down, not read my Bible tonight, and just watch football match after football match. And then we wonder why we don't have Christ's peace. It's amazing how you can talk to someone and say, I don't, I don't know, I, I can't seem to find time to be in God's word. I can't seem to find time for fellowship. I can't seem to find time for prayer. But we can stare at the TV for six hours a night. And if God really is going to be our peace, then he's going to have to evict the counterfeits. He's going to have to prove wrong the defaults and eliminate our crutches. Because remember what he said in Jeremiah 29, 13. You will seek me and find me when you search for me with all of your heart. See, what God is looking for is wholeheartedness. Have you, and let's just be honest, because I'll be honest, I'm going to confess to you, this has been me. Have you ever prayed to God with half of your mouth, half of your mind at best, while you're doing something else with the other hand? 
and the other part of your eye and the other part of your mind. Because let's face it, at this moment, but you should have stopped and really given God your time. But instead, you're like, God, I really kind of need this thing. But hold on a second, I'm going to make sure. And I'm doing a text at the same time. Oh, yeah, God, please, please. It's like somehow God, but we do that to, when we talk to people. Does that really show how important they are to us? I kind of have this rule that if someone really is important when it's important to them, single task. You can't multitask at a point when a person's, when it's an important moment. And we tell God, God, this is really important. God's like, it can't be that important. You're not even single tasking me. What God's looking for is wholeheartedness. Listen, this is what Jesus says in John chapter 14. And I do love this. This is verse 27. He says, look at my peace I give you, not as the world gives. Do I give to you? Let not your heart be troubled. Neither let it be afraid. You believe in God, believe also in me. And he'll actually go in to tell us about how he goes to prepare a place for us. And he says, in the world you'll have many trials, tribulations, but be of good cheer. Cheer up. I've overcome the world. He's like, listen. Jesus makes clear there are two pieces. He says, there's a peace I give you and that's not the same as the one the world gives. Listen, anything God gives you is permanent, transcending. Anything the world gives you has a shelf life and will decay quickly. It's not set to be eternal. The world is not built for eternity. That's why it has a shelf life. And it's already reserved for fire. Are you willing with me today to ask God then, Lord, make room for your peace. Remove the counterfeits. Prove wrong the defaults completely decimate any crutch I've been leaning on until I lay on you instead. Do you know what the end of it, the result will be? Wholehearted devotion. And remember, he wants us to seek him with our whole heart. And what the Lord's looking for is wholehearted devotion. The second, a future. Would you say, a charit? Try that with me. A charit. Acharit is the word here for future. And I do really like this word because the idea of this word... <clears throat> Is that which is brought to its proper end. Now, we know that a little bit perhaps more in the Greek. Like you'd see the words like teleos, right? Like tetelestai. And we've talked about something like the word perfect, for instance. When it talks about that you would be perfect. And that doesn't mean you're absent of flaw. It means that you go to the end of your thing. You look at the bus and it's the 168 to Old Kent Road to Tesco. You know that that should end up at the Old Kent Road to Tesco, right? That's where it should end up. If it doesn't get there, it didn't finish its route. It wasn't perfected. We used to live at South End Green. It was where the 168 ended on the other side, as well as the 24. At this particular church, it was a pretty easy place to go. We could pick up either one of those two buses down in Camden and just take it to where it ends. Now we live, in essence, towards the end, or at the end of the Northern Line on High Barnett. Now, with that in mind, as some of, some of the rest of you do as well, in the same way that if, imagine you get on, and if you've ever done this, it's always, you always kind of feel dumb for it. You're kind of running to catch the train and you see it pull up and you're kind of trying not to drop shoulders and push over some poor elderly person to get on that train because you really want to get home. And you hop on the train without realizing, of course, some of them don't always go to High Barnett. Some wind up in Mill Hill East, right? And so this thing sort of takes this thing and now you're kind of in the boondocks and you're kind of, well, what, wait, wait where, what did we, oh, did I take that train again? Now, please understand, when God wants to give us a future, the idea of it in its simplest sense is that I want to take you to the very end of this. It isn't just that because, I mean, think about it. Otherwise, wouldn't it be redundant for him to say that and to give us a hope? Doesn't that point us to the future? 
But the idea is quite simple. All of a sudden, God now, think of it this way, wants to take all of the cords of you, all of the cords, ambitions and priorities and identity and for all of your goals and the way you view people and your, and all of those things. He wants to take all of those cords and attach them now to eternity. That's the idea now. Is that what I want to give you is I want to connect you to eternity in every area. I want to take those cords now and I want you to look at Amina and Deborah and Daniela and Imon and Gina. And I want you to look at Marcia and Bruno. I want you to look at each other. I want you to look at Jamie and go, I want to look at you from the standpoint of eternity. And if all of a sudden we were in a burning building that had brand new iPhone 5s and you only had two hands, you'd grab someone else and take them out and leave the phones. Because in the sight of eternity, there are no iPhones in heaven. You say, but what if they were iPads, Pastor Tom? It doesn't matter. The moment we gave our life to Christ, we committed ourselves to become more like him. Aren't you thankful Jesus didn't leave us for stuff? We used to use people to get stuff. Now we use stuff to get people. That's what's different. You know why? Because he attached us to eternity. Our priorities were, I want to be a star. I want to be important. I want to be able to get to the top of the ladder. I want to make sure I get approval. Blah, blah, blah. And then he attaches us to eternity. It's like that stuff is going to be meaningless when all of those people are going to hell and they're not going to cast a vote before eternity anyways. I don't actually want to see them brought to heaven. I want to see them changed. I want to see them get the same glimpse I've been given. And all of a sudden that looks different now. My priorities change. My view of other people changes. My dreams and aspirations change. Because he's come to give us a future. We don't live just in the now. I've been in the moment enough to realize how dumb that can be. Having traveled around the world, and I know many of you have done the same, you ever been to a country and you're just like, while you're there, you're so in the moment, you make every choice as if this is where you're going to be for eternity? So I'm in Nigeria, and now I have a suitcase full of like those Nigerian mumus that I will never wear anywhere else in the world. But they were good to have there. But I was there for a week. But I was in the zone for that week, man. Living off of fufu and ugali and eating just eating things that I still, you know, snails that are like the size of cinnamon rolls and, you know, beautiful things that at that point, and people are like, you're, you're, you're Nigerian now, you're Nigerian. But in a week, I was going to go back and be American again. And of course, I don't remotely look Nigerian. But we do the same thing in regards to this earth. We're so in the moment, we forget there's an eternity that this is going to be so small and insignificant in comparison to. And Jesus goes, I've come. God speaking here says, the Lord, and Jesus is the Lord. Think of this. God's saying here, I've come to not just give you peace, but I've come to give you a future. And what that means is God is going to revolutionize the way you see things. That now we'll plow in hope. And what we will plow now and sow will have a scent of eternity with it. You know, he tells us that let our speech always be seasoned with salt, full of grace, that we may know how to answer everyone. Speak to the traditional Jew and ask him about salt. It is iconistic, emblematic of eternity. It's the one thing that reminds them of the transcending. Let your speech always smell a little bit like eternity. 
But the problem is, he says, from the abundance of your heart, your mouth speaks. That's Matthew 12, 34. If our heart doesn't have any attachment to eternity, well, then why would our mouth speak it unless it's a script in front of us like a song at the beginning of a church service? But when God attaches us, you can't help it. Everything looks different. Standing in the rain for a moment isn't so bad anymore. Because now, people are changing when you're attaching them to. We had this kooky little band once. Oh, this is so many years ago. I would hate to, I'm embarrassed to even tell you. In a place called Pismo Beach. And this guy had converted this tiny little place about the size of one of the um, stores on the main street in Camden with a little tiny upstairs area that he called the living room. Wall, he makes wall boards, the boogie boards, those little things that are almost surfboards that people lay on and flip around in the water with. He's a super neat guy and he really wanted to, he had just gotten saved not that long before that and he really wanted to, he really just wanted to let people know about Jesus. His entire business had transformed. It had skyrocketed, by the way, as well. It all of a sudden had become super popular. Crazy things had happened. It was kind of wild. But he didn't care anymore because at this point he had been attached to eternity and he wanted to turn even this place that was going to be a showroom for his wallboards. Now he wanted to turn it into something that attached to eternity. And he's like, people are like, how is it going to pay the rent? Well, no one knew how it was going to pay the rent because he thought, well, he's not selling anything there anymore. He brings us in, just three of us. It starts to, and it's supposed to be this sort of large event. And as we start to play, it pours rain like Noah should build a boat outside. Kind of like we had here yesterday, the day before. You know that moment where the moment you step outside, God had been holding the buckets. And all of a sudden, we, and he's like, oh, what's the Lord going to do? But he's so young in the faith, as we all should be in this sense, he's trusting the Lord's going to do something cool. There are 50, 100 people standing outside in the rain who couldn't get in because the place was too full. Here's the cute part. Well, I'd say roughly a quarter of the people that were out there that were people that were friends of ours that had come in to watch, but because they loved Jesus so much and had been so attached to eternity, they wanted to get other people the space inside. But that wasn't enough for them. Since they stood out there and there were more people standing out there, they proceeded to evangelize. Hundreds of people got saved that night. Hundreds of people, of which I can tell you of at least five different men who are pastoring churches now from that night. But it gets crazier for him. That night, a man came by, saw this whole thing, saw this whole phenomenon, gave his life to Christ, happened to be a wealthy landowner, sold a piece of property, and paid his rent for 10 years. He says, if this is what you're going to do, then I don't want you to have to pay for it. You know, those are the kind of stories we hear, right? Sometimes we get the privilege of living through them. But in the end of it all, every one of those people in there, including us, was like, oh, what kind of night is this going to be? It's supposed to downpour and the whole bit. But God attaches you to eternity and he's like, you know what? You're going to make the most of this moment because the days are evil. You've got an opportunity. Let's use it. Have you ever noticed that those places you don't want to go the most wind up becoming some of the biggest blessings? And even though you know that you still don't want to go the next time that happens, right? I've come to give you peace. But let's make room for that peace. Let's get rid of the false peace and get the real peace in. And then I'm going to give you a future and I'm going to attach you to eternity. That's the way this works. Because he who called you is faithful. Oh, he'll do it. First Thessalonians 5.24. So let's finish this up. And by the way, by the time you're done, 
you'll not only have a wholehearted devotion, as with our peace, you'll have a wholehearted direction in regards to our future. Does that make sense? Dare I say it? You will actually be the real one direction. All right, here we go. Yeah, that's really lame. I'm aware of you. The last of them, and a hope. The good news about hope is God knows how to give us hope. Unfortunately, it's not necessarily routes we might want. Let me give you three very simple ways. Romans 5, verse 3 says, that we glory in our tribulations. Knowing that tribulation produces perseverance and perseverance, character and character, hope. And hope does not disappoint because of the love that God has poured into our hearts. I'm sorry, by the Holy Spirit he's given us. The Lord has trials planned for this year for you. And instead of trying to dodge them and evade them, like a jury summons, like a warrant, it is time to say, Lord, you really are in control of all things. I trust you. Oh, you've given me responsibility to my choices, but you are still sovereign. I don't have to figure that out. I can just rest in the fact that they both exist. And nothing gets past you. If you've ordained it, it's to give me hope. And I want real hope this year. I don't want a hope so hope, a diluted form of surety, but rather a hope that literally to look to the future and anticipate with pleasure. That's the idea. Any of you get that way the day before Christmas Eve? And you're like, oh, I think I'm going to get, I might get, I might get. Every day should be like that. You wake up in the morning, there's a gift on the end of your bed God gave you called the day. He wants you to unwrap it and enjoy it. Tomorrow you won't be able to have that gift. You got a new one. Every day he's got a new gift for you called the day. Perhaps that's why it's called the present. It says in Romans, by the way, 15 verse 4. Whatever things were written, were written for our learning that we through the patience and comfort of the scriptures might have hope. Not only does God ordain tribulations to give us hope, he's also given us his word to give us hope. What if we took a year and really dedicated it to reading his word? Now here's the danger. As a teacher who teaches five to eight studies a week, I could easily open up God's word simply to say, well, what's going to teach next? As if somehow I'm kind of more like a, a delivery boy that's dying of starvation smelling the pizzas on the back of my little scooter versus being someone who's cooking for his family that we get to sit down and eat together. Paul would say, that which I first received, I gave to you. And there is a danger, beloved, for every one of us to read and think, oh, that should be for that person or that should be for that person or just to read because somehow we think the knowledge will make us better arguers instead of saying, God, what changes do you want to wrought in my life? Have you ever told God, God, where do you want me to go? And you don't hear anything, so you don't know where God wants you to go, but maybe he didn't speak because you didn't say here was an option. So you're like, Lord, do I pick the red or the blue? And God didn't say because maybe he doesn't want you to pick anything right now. And you read his word and you're like, I don't get everything. And God says, I didn't want you to get everything right now. What I want you to get is what I want to tell you right now for this. So stop worrying about understanding everything. The reason you want to understand everything is to better argue, is to better whatever, but I just want to speak to you today for you to go closer to me. And I want to give you a hope. And that hope comes from our intimacy. And when you open my word, 
I have something. And you're like, and it's amazing. You're like, I didn't get any of this. And you're like, well, tell me what it meant. And you share like half of what the chapter means. And you're like, well, wait a minute. How do you say you didn't get anything? Well, like that's simple. And it's like, yeah, but that's profound. It's sort of like, well, gosh, I got really wet when I got in the shower, but I didn't get to drink it all. I'm like, you weren't supposed to. But God's word, he wants us to have hope finally. In Romans 15, 13, it says, may the God of hope Fill you with all the joy and peace in believing that you may abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. It's God's Holy Spirit that will ensure within you bolster and strengthen that hope. That's nothing super esoteric. It's just that as we grow closer to the Lord, He just tends to do that. And what we'll end up at the end of this is a wholehearted direction, a wholehearted dedication and a wholehearted decision to follow him like we should. So all that's left now is what I should do. What's, what's my response then? If this is God's plan for me, if God's plan for me is to give me that kind of peace, if God's plan for me then is to give me that kind of future, to attach me to that kind of eternity, if God's plan then is to give me this kind of hope, well then what's my response to that? In the last couple of minutes remaining, listen to me, then we'll finish this. First of all, might I suggest you take a look at Philippians 3.12. When Paul speaks about wanting to be perfect but not getting there, he says, not that I've already attained or am already perfected, but I press on that I may lay hold of that which Christ Jesus has laid a hold of me. Brethren, I do not count myself to have apprehended, but one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forward or towards those things for the, um, which are ahead, I press toward the goal of the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. You know what we do? We leave 2.13 behind. Hey, there may be great memories, some wonderful things that we can look at and build some monuments to say this is places where God did beautiful things. And that, if it doesn't put you looking forward, you'll put the car in park. If I look back and I say, this is something God did, I wonder what he's going to do today. That's a good thing. If you say, this is what God did, and all you want to tell me is what God did years ago, is it just to mask the silence recently? That's the concern. And what Paul says, and look at this is a guy hot in pursuit. He's on the mission field at this point. And he could look and say, you know what? I could say that was enough. We've planted some churches. This is cool. Look at the Middle East. We're getting, we're really getting hot here. But he's like, oh, no, no, no. There's Europe now. And we want to get into Europe. And by the time Paul is writing this, Paul is deep into Europe. He's in, when he speaks to the Philippians here, he has made his way through Macedonia, Achaia, and made his way back over to Asia Minor. There's a lot to be said there. Understand, Paul was not one of those kind of people that good was good enough. And I like that about him because God's not that kind of person. God doesn't say, okay, good, that's good enough. He's like, but what about awesome? What about amazing? What about mind-blowing? God Is, is God almighty or is he just kind of mighty? And what kind of life do you think he has for you? A kind of media, slightly above mediocre life? Whatever happened to life more than you can contain? I've come to give you life and that more abundant. More abundant isn't just mean more abundant than you have at the moment. It means more than abundant. The idea of it is literally, it's above and beyond what you can contain. That's the idea. God wants you to have so much life and so much joy and so much peace and so much love in you that anything you bump into, you spill it on because you can't contain it. That's the idea. People get doused in your love and your joy and your peace because you don't have enough room within you to contain it all. So here's my last thought as we kind of close this. 
When God starts to speak about this, and I get the idea, and this is what he sat down. And understand, this may not even be for you. This may be just for me. But I have to throw it out anyways because it's what the Lord's been telling me. He's like, he says, listen, Tony, are you planning or are you planting? And then he brought me to one of my favorite verses in all of Scripture, Psalm 92, 13. And this is what it says right before that. And we read it earlier. The righteous shall flourish. And right before that, the contrast, classic Hebrew literature, the contrast was that rich people get great stuff now, but they wither so quickly because they're not attached to eternity. Now we are, and we see things differently. Like Asaph, who had a pretty big conflict of faith in Psalm 73, when he said, I almost stumbled when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. And you go, well, that's giving yourself a little credit. It looks like you stumbled really hard. And he was freaking out because they seemed like they just got easier and easier for these people, just like we would have prayed, make my life easier. And he's like, look, at they got everything I'm looking for. And then he said, then I went into the sanctuary of our God and I saw their end. And all of a sudden, when God attached him back to eternity, he looked and he started to pity the people he envied a moment ago. And in that same contrast, it says now in Psalm 92, 12, the righteous shall flourish like a palm tree. He shall grow like a cedar in Lebanon. Those who are planted in the house of the Lord shall flourish in the courts of our God. Oh, they shall bear fruit in old age. They shall be fresh and flourishing to declare that the Lord is upright. He is my rock and there is no unrighteousness in him. Do you remember how at the end of the Jeremiah text, he says, I really want to be found by you. You'll find me when you seek me with your whole heart. There's a verse that's been resonating. And again, this may be me. It's up to you whether you want to decide whether it's you or not. But please hear me. And this is Psalm 86, 11. Listen to this beautiful verse. And I believe, and one of the things I love about the songs, the Psalms, is they teach us the heart of a person and not just the doctrine that surrounds us. Oh, they're both profound and beautiful. But please listen to this. Teach me your way, O Lord. I walk in your truth. Listen to this beautiful statement. Unite my heart to fear your name. Not just take over my heart. Unite it. Do you get the idea what the psalmist is saying here? He's going, God, my heart's in so many directions right now. It's like, I know that I promised I'd give it all to you. But if I don't give it all to you, do you have to take it in pieces? Do you have to keep breaking it to take piece by piece? Because right now, there's a part that just wants to run to you with everything. And there's a part that just really is hungry for the things of the world. There's a part that's really listening to the lies of the enemy right now. And there's a part that's really in your word. There's a part that's so satisfied in you. And there's another part that's still peeking around the corner to find out what I have, what I don't have. I remember the first time when I was a young Christian reading through Exodus and seeing this mixed multitude. And you know, most of them seemed like they wanted to go back and some didn't even know why they were there. And people complained about just about everything. And there were a few that seemed like they were interested in moving forward. And you know, and of course it's easy to go, well, isn't that the church, right? There are some that are really happy to be there. Some got dragged by their aunt or their grandma or whatever, their nan. And there are some that, you know, they don't even know why they're there. And I remember the Lord sitting me down and saying, Tony, that's you. That's just you. That's your heart. There's a part of you that just craves me with everything like a breath. There's a part of you that still looks at the world and thinks of glory days that weren't glorious then but look like it now. There's a part of you that's still trying to sniff around to see what you're missing. There's a part of you that doesn't look and says, you're everything I need. And my prayer to the Lord is this. 
Unite my heart to fear your name. Don't just let a part of it love you. Because he never said, love the Lord with part of your heart, part of your mind, part of your soul, part of your strength. That's enough for me. Because I'll only kind of die on the cross anyways and kind of raise again, kind of take your shame, kind of take your sins. That's not what he did, did he? Jesus totally took our sins. And he totally took our shame. And he totally took our pain. And he totally took our regret. And he totally took the spit and the nails and the chiding and the insults and the slapping and the punching and the beating and the reeds and the cross. Totally took it all. And he's looking now for requainted love. To respond in like manner. And it doesn't say, do all of this and maybe I'll think of a plan. God says, here's my plan for you. Would you like to come along? My plan is this. My plan is to give you peace this year. To be your peace this year. My plan is to attach you to eternity in every area of your life. To give you a future. And to give you a hope. That you will be excited about tomorrow. And excited about the following day. And every day you'll look and say, there's a gift to be unwrapped. And I can't unwrap it till it comes and it'll only come that day. Because that's my plan for you. And you're going to grow one way or another. But what I'm looking for is all of you. So this is what I'm going to do. Maybe out of the ordinary, but what ordinary do we possibly have here? We have a song called All of Me, right? What we'll do is we'll take that song and we'll sing that and then at the end of it all we'll just pray. Hey, if you've never accepted the gift of Jesus Christ, I want to give you that opportunity tonight, but I'm going to say that right now. Jesus died and hung on a cross because we are all guilty sinners without him. And he paid for every sin we've ever committed so that someone could have, so that God, the righteous judge, could fully punish all of our sins and still set the sinner free. And he asks for you to make a choice. If you accept the gift of Jesus, you're not just asking, you're not just getting a get out of hell free card. You are accepting Christ's offer of love to lead you and love you and cover you and lavish you and set you free and pardon you. That's up to you. And if you do, then just cry out to God tonight. Say, all right, God, I'm a sinner and I believe that Jesus died for me on the cross. He rose again on the third day and I invite him to be the Lord and Savior of my life. You can do that. You don't need me to lead you. You can do that. But as we sing this song now, at the end of which, I just want to pray for any of us who actually have already made claim to him. That tonight we'll say, all right, God, whatever it is, I give you permission. But I want to leave here wholehearted with you. So let's take that moment now.